Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, do you suffer from climate anxiety or know people that do? We'll be trying to navigate our way through it. And Dr. Tara Shine will talk about her experiences in international climate negotiations, as well as her book, How to Save Your Planet One Object at a Time, for this week's My Green Life interview. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. And now it's time to head down to Earth, beginning with our weekly Planet News Roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, the Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Craig, the first story this week I think we have to talk about is the weather, because both the UK and Ireland have been battered by storms Dudley, Eunice, Franklin, and I think Gladys now, all one after the other. And coincidentally, the good folks here at Icarus Climate Research Center here in Maynooth University just published a study in the journal Climate Dynamics looking at the changes in the jet stream, so that narrow band of air about 10 kilometers high flowing from west to east around the world, and it obviously really drives our climate in this part of the world. So when they looked at that jet stream over a 140-year period, they found that it's actually moving northwards, closer to the UK and Ireland, and it's increased in speed by about 8%, which is making our storms more powerful. Are you actually surprised by any of this, Craig? No, I'm not really, Cara. I mean, actually, 20, 30 years ago, we were hearing about how this was one of the likely impacts of climate change and that, you know, sadly for us, in the UK and Ireland, climate change was most likely to mean uh, wetter and windier future rather than necessarily that kind of the idea of sitting there drinking gin under the palm trees. Uh, and so this really just kind of confirms that. And, um, you know, of course, the fact that this research came out in the same week that we've had this kind of conveyor belt of storms coming in from the Atlantic, battering both the UK and Ireland, I, I think it just sort of really resonated for people. And it really raises questions, I think, as to how well adapted our economies are to the climate change yet to come. I mean, it's it's one thing that uh, the change we've already experienced and these more extreme storms, uh, but actually it's nothing compared to what perhaps is just 10, 15, 20 years away. And I don't know about you, Carl, I find every time there's an extreme storm like this, you know, the trains stop uh, because the overhead power lines clash into each other. Um, it, it really sort of causes quite a lot of disruption. Uh, so I don't think our economies are anywhere near as resilient as they need to be for the more extreme weather coming. Yeah, you're right about the timing, because I notice as someone who's involved in this whole space of climate change, every time there's an extreme storm or big weather, the media is really quick to call people like me, maybe people like you and say, what Mm. does this have to do with climate change? And that's usually really hard because it takes a bit of time to run the numbers and be able to attribute specific storms to climate change, whereas this study just happened to come out. I mean, it's actually been something they've been working on for years, but it happened to come out at the same time that all these storms are happening and, and kind of adds evidence to that. But you talked about the the economic implications, and I, and I was surprised, you know, there was no mention of the impact on air travel. It's obviously going to really change uh, travel around the globe because of the changes in the jet stream. But also, too, it showed that the North Atlantic is really unique. A lot of these problems with the jet stream moving and speeding up are happening specifically in the North Atlantic area. And we're not prepared. We're not able to adapt to these kind of changes. And and we're not even really able to predict what the implications will be of these changes in the jet stream. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and you're, I completely agree, Carl. I mean, we get people like you and I get called all the time when you when you get sort of stormy weather. But actually, whether one individual storm uh, can be attributed to climate change or not is is kind of irrelevant if actually scientists are really really clear uh, that this is the kind of uh, weather we're going to get much more frequently uh, in the future as a result of climate change. You know, it, you can't necessarily you don't have to pin one particular storm on climate change to to just be reminded that this is the kind of future we're going to see more of. And so I think that point about getting our economies ready. 
learning to, to adapt to the climate change we, we've already got locked in and that we can't avoid now, whatever happens now, I think is a really important point to think about. And, you know, you look at roofs flying off houses, you look at uh, all that disruption to our uh, transport infrastructure. You know, the fact is we're not ready. Uh, Western society is not ready for the coming storms, unfortunately. And, and I think we've got to treat adaptation much more seriously. Yeah, possibly a piece of good news that you've brought me this week. The next breaking story comes from Australia. And we're used to hearing about all these plans for climate action actually being delayed. But this is a situation where, in fact, Australia's largest coal-fired power station has announced that they're going to close seven years early, actually in 2025. So is this something we should be celebrating? Yes, I think it definitely is, Cara. I mean, you know, I... (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's. I f- obviously feel for the workers involved here, and I think uh, the the uh, story behind this is that because sadly the Australian government, certainly under Scott Morrison, has sort of been in denial almost about climate change or need to act on it at least. Then actually they haven't put the mechanisms in place to to kind of um, make sure that there's a fair transition for workers. Uh, so I think there is that to talk about. But overall, uh, coal-fired power stations uh, closing. If you're concerned about climate change, that's a good thing. So you're right. Australia hasn't been known for being progressive when it comes to climate action. Let's have a listen to Scott Morrison five years ago, just before he became prime minister, as he brought a lump of coal into the parliament. Mr. Speaker. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite. From the Hunter Valley, as the member for Hunter would know. It's coal that has ensured for over a hundred years the Deputy that Australia Prime Minister. has enjoyed an energy competitive advantage that has delivered prosperity to Australian businesses and has ensured that Australian industry has been able to remain competitive on a global market. Ancient sunlight, I think they call that, Craig. (laughs) Uh, Australia was absolutely slated at the United Nations COP26 last year for failing to meet the climate challenge. I think you were there. You were probably watching all of this. Have they suddenly seen the light? Well, no, what's happened very simply is it's the economics has changed. I mean, origin energy uh, has what they've done is that the owner of the power station has given notice to the Australian energy market operator uh, that it will be shutting this uh, coal-fired power station from August 25. And the reason they give is the rapidly changing conditions of their national electricity market, which are increasingly, they say, not well suited to traditional baseload power stations. Now, I think there is a point here Cara also about the rapid rise of cheaper renewable energy and in Australia in particular the huge fast rise of solar power which is really kind of making a difference to the dynamics in Australia which is perhaps less relevant say to the UK and Ireland uh, not least after the previous conversation Um, but actually nonetheless that change to uh, traditional baseload power stations is relevant to countries like the UK and Ireland because actually what you see Uh, as we move to renewables and better energy storage and actually just a more smart energy grid perhaps is what you don't need is big power stations on the grid that you can't turn off what you do need is a much more dynamic and agile grid and i think it's really interesting that when you see the cost of renewables coming down and actually if you get say in australia a period of a, a lot of sunshine or a period of a lot of wind actually it squeezes out coal-fired power and so i think this is really interesting it's, it might be happening in australia if you like first uh, because of their huge abundance of renewable energy but i think it will come to other countries as well i was actually kind of surprised that the new south wales energy minister responded to this announcement by saying he was disappointed in the company's decision but he acknowledged that you know the closure would cause some problems if if the power plant isn't replaced and then he promised that the state would build what he described as the biggest battery in the southern hemisphere in response to that is is this a a real concept that's going to happen do you think yeah, I mean, I think the the big issue here is not so much renewable uh, technologies in their own right. I think, you know, solar power, wind power and uh, other forms of renewable energy are well proven that the big challenge now is to move fast for economies on uh, energy storage. 
And of course, we've always had to do that. You know, uh, countries have always had to stockpile coal, has always had to uh, store gas and so on. So there's nothing new about energy storage as such, but it, it needs to be quite different in an age of renewables. And I think uh, you're seeing that quite strongly now in Australia. But I'll tell you what else is interesting in relation to this story in, uh, over the last week, Cara, is that actually now you've got tech billionaires uh, in Australia talking about buying up uh, some of these sort of failing coal industries and shutting them down earlier as well. And it's really interesting that this uh, tech billionaire in Australia called Mike Cannon Brooks is now trying to buy several big coal plants to shut them down in favour of renewables. And you might think, is that just a kind of altruistic thing to do? Well, it could be. You know, a lot of tech billionaires love to talk about how they're saving the planet. But actual fact, you know, uh, building on what I was saying before, really a new 21st century energy system is like to involve a lot of smart tech. It's likely to involve a lot of microchips uh, deciding how to have a much more dynamic response to energy demand. So maybe he might be thinking about the commercial side of this as well. So I think what we're seeing here in this story from Australia this week, when you put those all together, is just kind of the front line, perhaps, of what the new energy world order might look like. And I think with the, obviously, the very disturbing news from uh, uh, Ukraine as well this week about what's happening there, I think surely all of this just points to the, the need for the Western world to get off that fossil fuel hook as fast as possible and actually think, how can we make a 100% renewable economy work as fast as possible. Speaking of getting off fossil fuel, Craig, I think your your final story of the week, we need to throw back to the, the 1997 movie, The Saint, where actress Elizabeth Shue explains the magic of cold fusion. This is the, the apparatus. And very simply, when positively charged deuterons are attracted to the palladium cathode, they cram together, and there are millions and millions of them inside the cathode, getting closer and closer, and then they, they fuse. And they create energy in the form of helium. But I read somewhere that the experiment couldn't be replicated. So how do we know it works? Well, we don't. Not yet. There were a lot of movies and articles about this idea of nuclear fusion in the 1990s as this kind of source of unlimited clean energy where we would harvest the, you know, the power of the stars and the sun, Craig. But now it's back in the news. So have we finally cracked what some are calling the biggest scientific and engineering challenge of all time? Well, interesting. I mean, I think it's really important for us to talk about this, Cara, this week, because it, it I think it is fair to say that what happened over the last week was a significant step forward for nuclear fusion at the uh, joint European Taurus uh, experiment in Oxfordshire in the UK. They succeeded in generating 59 megajoules of heat. That's equivalent to around 14 kilograms of TNT during a five second burst of fusion. Uh, and they managed to get the plasma that creates some fusion to, to sort of last for five seconds. Uh, and so there was lots of scientists celebrating this. There's been other significant developments recently around the world on this as well, not least in the in the US on nuclear fusion. Um, and, you know, I think it's very interesting. I mean, you know, traditionally environmentalists have been very opposed to nuclear power. Uh, and I would say personally for good reasons as well. But we know that nuclear fusion is a bit different. Uh, it doesn't cause the same kind of levels of uh, pollution and so on that, uh, and, and all the uh, many of the other concerns associated with nuclear power. However, does this mean that it's around the corner and is it a nice sort of silver bullet to tackling climate change? Um, I, personally, I think not. I think we're still a very long way from... Uh, being able to develop nuclear fusion power stations that can sustain the fusion reaction for long enough to actually generate more uh, energy than has been put in to start the reaction in the first place, let alone kind of containing that reaction in a kind of safe way, uh, let alone being able to scale it up in a sort of industrial uh, scale and, and, and out. And can any of that happen by 2030, by which time we have to have halved global emissions of carbon dioxide by at least 50%? No, I don't think so. So although I think we should sort of essentially cautiously celebrate the success of uh, scientists in doing this, and it is an interesting scientific experiment, um, I would worry about perhaps uh, politicians and others being distracted from what we know works uh, and know has to be rolled out at speed and scale by 2030, which of course I would say is renewables and smart technologies uh, and energy efficiency. We know that works. 
Um, and we should carry on experimenting and researching nuclear fusion, but let's not rely on it. Yeah, you quoted this 14 kilograms of TNT, which is the 11 megawatts of power that they generated over five seconds. And, and maybe that sounds like a lot for people who don't understand explosives. But to put it in another way, it's enough to boil 60 kettles worth of water. And and this is this is a stat that's double, you know, what they achieved in 1997. So between 1997 and now, you know, we've gone from boiling 30 kettles of water to 60 kettles of water and it's all over the news and everybody's celebrating and I just can't help thinking you know we can power millions of homes with wind and solar and I don't remember any big celebrations about announcements around that so is our excitement kind of misplaced should we not be celebrating the fact that we can capture the power of the wind and the power of the sun already uh, instead of getting so caught up in this big news story around uh, nuclear fusion yeah, I completely agree, Carla. I mean, I think there is a kind of a, a bit of a big tech. Uh, let's let's all wear a white lab coat or a high vis jacket about this, and we get excited about the big kit. And perhaps it's harder sometimes for the media, or perhaps particularly even male politicians. I think there might be a bit of a gender issue here. If, if dare I say it, Carla, I think it is uh, much more exciting for uh, particularly male politicians and engineers to get excited about bits of big kit rather than actually focusing on what works. And we we know how well renewables work. We know how well energy efficiency in particular, just uh, insulating your loft and things like that. We know how, work, how well that works and how, how well that delivers, but we don't get nearly so excited about it. And as you say, in countries like the UK and Ireland, when you think how much tea we drink, goodness, we need more than just enough to <laughs> boil 60 kettles. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the gender thing because it was in my head that this kind of boys with toys sense of these articles that I was reading. But they're saying I that... thought I'd say it right before you did, Carl. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I won't be accused of sexism here, but there's a new fusion reactor now being built in the south of France uh, to kind of pilot, continue to pilot this. And ironically, we'll be discussing the other nuclear reaction, nuclear fission and its viability as part of next week's show on Down to Earth. So in the meantime, Craig, thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly big news. Okay, Carl, I'll speak next week. Great. After the break, our experts discuss the rise in climate anxiety and how to cope. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet... I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk, and that was youth climate activist Greta Thunberg bringing her truth to power at the United Nations Climate Action Summit in 2019. But how did it make you feel? Well, anxiety about climate change is creeping into therapists' office around the globe, with a study published in The Lancet last month saying that over half of the 10,000 young people they surveyed feel that humanity was quote-unquote doomed, and three-quarters describing the future as frightening. So today I'm joined by environmental journalist John Gibbons and psychotherapist and author of the 15-minute parenting series, Joanna Fortune, to shed some light on this emerging concern. Hello, John and Joanna. Hi, Cara. You guys are both experts that I draw on regularly for advice in different ways. John, I've been known to drag you in to present to my students about the reality of the climate and biodiversity crisis. And honestly, they do come away from your talk uh, quite terrified. And at the same time, Joanna, I've called you for advice plenty of times for how to help young people cope with this reality. So first of all, I'm curious to hear from both of you how the words we just heard from Greta Thunberg make you both feel. John, maybe you could start. Yeah, I think uh, Greta really articulated uh, what many people who've been following this subject closely have felt for years, but maybe never got to hear said out loud, at least not in a, in a major public forum. So really, for you know, certainly I found listening to her words, uh, it, it was that articulation of those many thoughts and feelings that have been rattling around my head for many, many years. Uh, and I would say nothing that she said or, or the way she describes it is in any way overstating the matter. And I think it's really important to say that, you know, we sometimes talk about eco-anxiety almost as if it were a pathology. 
it's really important to say that maybe a better term is eco-distress. People are distressed about the state of the climate and about the state of the biosphere, and there is really good reason for that distress. This is nothing to do with people being um, emotional or irrational or illogical. You know, the people who are the most concerned about the environment and about the, about biodiversity are the people who are paying attention. And generally speaking, people who are laid back and pretty pretty relaxed about it are simply people who haven't tuned in yet. So John says this is an accurate portrayal of the situation. Joanna, as someone who works with young people all the time, how, how do Greta's words resonate with young people, do you think? I think they hear not just what she's saying, but how she's saying it. And I don't disagree with John largely in terms of I don't think she's overreacting. I don't think it's a hysterical statement. And I don't think people are not getting it, especially children. But I think what she when I listened to that and having heard it before, young people are and have been the face and voice of eco-awareness and the burden of responsibility now needs to be carried by the adults in their lives as well. Because that is distress in her tone, in what she's saying. And saying it's distress isn't to minimize or dismiss it, because it is a distressing thing she's talking about. And I think, you know, picking up on what John said there, that eco-anxiety would be better described as eco-distress because it's not a pathology. While it may not, uh, certainly not yet, be a diagnosable condition and it's not categorized under other anxiety disorders, it is notably on the rise The Lancet study highlights that. There are many other studies. And anecdotally, in therapist offices all around this country and others, we are hearing it. And I think the word anxiety, Cara, we do need to hold that in our minds because take, for example, a child who may already be struggling with anxiety. They can be very activated, even panicked, by fear-based approaches, by hearing distressing statements. And, you know, we see it when there's weather events happening and fear spikes in children who are already predisposed to anxiety. So I think having anxiety about climate change, about what the very near future holds, it's what we call an anxiety that has a context. It's not anxiety without basis. It's not anxiety that you don't know what you're worried about. And sometimes you're worried about what you're worried about because you don't know what it's about. You very much do. And there's a lot of information fueling it. So we do have a significant cohort of young people who are anxious about all of this. And anxious is the word. And presumably we have adults that are very anxious about this too. Am I right? I would think so. Absolutely. I certainly have anxiety about it. And I just it's about how we do this with and for children. I think children are very invested in all of this as well. And I think us adults could really take our cues and leads from children. John, Joanna's mentioned that really we need adults to act on this to kind of alleviate some of the stress that, that younger people are experiencing. Do you think when you're, I mean, you you explain these things to to groups of all ages, including adults, do you think that sometimes in adults too we have this immobilizing effect from the fear that the ecological crisis creates? Yeah, I, I think once people grasp the extent of the crisis and the the, the all-encompassing nature of it, uh, there is a tendency, there is a, a natural tendency to withdraw and, if you like, to to pull in your horns and to kind of ball yourself up in a in, into a into a ball and kind of more or less want it to go away. That's a normal human reaction. We each of us as humans, we have a sort of a quota of bad news that we can deal with at any given time. And young people, for example, they're already dealing with you know adolescents, they're dealing with social media, they're dealing with, uh, you know, people heading into a a really unfriendly housing market, say, for young adults in their 20s and 30s. They're already facing many challenges. Uh, Many of them are normal challenges. And of course, what we have here, I suppose, is an overlay of a a distress related to the the conditions for life. And and this is new. I mean, distress and anxiety are are part of the human condition. Uh, And I think Nobody would deny that. That is unquestionable. What's different now is that eco-distress, as we call it, is a direct response to awareness of the overall failure of the ecological system. And that and I say failure of the ecological system, that's where we're currently in and approaching system failure. 
And for people to be aware of that and not to be distressed, in fact, I would consider that to be a pathological reaction. Uh, if you're in a, in, in a situation like we are now and you're not experiencing anxiety and you're not concerned, then you've probably, you, you've, you've also, you've probably you're engaging in some form uh, of denial yourself. And in fact, that to me would be the, the unusual and the irrational response to this is to be not distressed. Because when you're facing uh, a crisis on this scale, to not react is a pathological response. Uh, you know, if you're being chased by a, by a tiger, um, then, then the healthy and the normal response is to run like hell. Uh, so that's the fear response. The problem, of course, with this is the fear response doesn't do us a whole lot of good, because when you find yourself in in the in the adrenaline-soaked fear response that that uh, ecological bad news can trigger in people, it leaves you basically feeling distressed. Yet that offers you no relief because there's nowhere to run away to. So managing that over the long term, that's the real challenge for people. How do you live with eco-distress, acknowledging that it's real, that it's not, as I say, a pathology, that you're not being irrational or emotional, uh, but yet continuing to function? That's a real challenge. And also, I think uh, the notion that we need to fix people who are eco-anxious, I don't think so. I think we need to listen to them. Joanna, would you agree that we, we've kind of hit our quota of bad news and we just need to accept this and get on with our lives? See, I think there's some, it, when I'm listening to you, John, like I'm thinking, yes, 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 but also no, it's it's not the content, it's the how. Young people know this is serious. They don't need to be terrified into believing it's seriousness. They need to be empowered and supported into taking action. And I think, you know, John, you really hit on something there in terms of it's one thing to get the message, but how does it turn into action? Because to inspire optimism and hope, they need access to accessible, accurate science but also practical ways to make, yes, individual changes, but also get involved at community level. And in general, we talk about the importance for young people and their mental health and well-being, but as well as climate action in getting involved and connected with nature in general. Because I think, you know, Cara, in a world of social media, live reporting of events, things, you know, going on actively every day online, Children are not short of fear-based messaging and alarmist approaches, but hope and optimism is in short supply. And thinking about the tiger chasing you or running for you, there are actually many ways that we can act in fear. Fear can activate and mobilize us, or fear can freeze us. We don't move at all. You know, if a tiger is coming towards you, some of us will run. Some of us will hope that if we don't move a muscle or take a breath, the tiger will go by us. And some of us will just adapt and think, well, if I'm like a tiger, then maybe the tiger will be my friend. So there are many approaches. So what I'm saying is an environment of fear and anxiety will not improve learning or prompt positive action. Because when we're in those fight, flight, freeze impulses and they're activated, we're in a state of anticipatory fear-based arousal. And we do not take in, process, retain cognitive information in that state because we're so consumed with the tiger, the tiger, the tiger, or end of the world, end of the world, end of the world, that we don't see anything beyond futility. So I don't believe that fear leads to positive, proactive action. Its narrative is one of doom and inevitability. And children need to know that change is possible to make change possible. So we should focus on solutions, actions, potential rather than doom and fatalism. John, I've heard you refer to hope as hopium. What do you think actually works in terms of motivating people, particularly adults, I think, more importantly than, than young people, in getting them to take action on the climate crisis? Yeah, you, you beat me to it, Cara, with the, with the phrase hopium. I mean, essentially, we've, we've basically the international community has been engaged, if you like, uh, at an intergovernmental level on the climate issue since the early 90s, so about 30 years. And in that 30 years of international intergovernmental action, what we've seen happen in that time is that global emissions have doubled. There's now twice as many global emissions as there were in 1990. So this is where hope and optimism has got us. This is where the feel good, we can do this messaging has got us, unfortunately. What it has meant is it has allowed governments off the hook because what they're doing is they're selling the idea to their populations that, yeah, we'll fix this. There'll be a technology, there'll be a solution, there'll be a something will come along. Just be hopeful, be optimistic, it'll be fine. Now, the problem with hope is unless you're actually heading in the right direction, hope is delusional. 
And I think it's perfectly reasonable to experience hopelessness. If you're looking at this situation rationally and you feel hopeless. Now, however difficult that is for you emotionally, it is a perfectly reasonable to feel hopeless about the climate emergency. It is perfectly rational. And I think people also, we need to be wary of trying to fix how people feel because it is, as I said, I've, I've lived with this for 20 years, more or less. Now, I've been through the whole cycle of hope, despair and back again. And it is, nobody can tell me that what I need to do is to buck up and to be more optimistic and to be more hopeful because I have studied this, I've written about it, I've spoken about it, and I have watched all the conditions for life on Earth get steadily worse. In fact, rapidly worse in the 20 years that I've been engaged in this and say 15 of those years in the public domain. Nothing has changed, nothing has improved. All the indicators are getting worse. In that, in that context, hope to me sounds like somebody is, is, is peddling me a story, right? What we need instead, and I appreciate that the, the many downsides of fear and how difficult and disengaging it can be, but it is not rational to be hopeful when the conditions are getting worse. It's like being on a ship that is going down and you're on the deck and you're saying, guys, we need to buck up, we need to be optimistic. No, we don't. We need to stop the ship from sinking. However bad that might make you feel, however difficult the task is, we need to stop the ship sinking rather than hoping and being optimistic about the future of the ship because basically that ship is us. You and I are both fans of, of the film Don't Look Up that uh, appeared on Netflix with Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio not too long ago. And uh, there's a lot of satire in there. You can see where the media are telling climate communicators or, or you know, the two scientists in the movie to, to be cheerful and be upbeat when they're presenting this news. Do you think there's room for humor or satire as a way of, of coping with this crisis? I absolutely do, Cara, and certainly that film resonated very, very strongly with me because we've all seen the, the, the apocalyptic-style films like The Day After Tomorrow. We've seen the Al Gore Inconvenient Truth where it's taken in documentary style. We've seen the wonderful uh, cinematography of David Attenborough trying to communicate the wonders of the natural world, yet none of them have, have penetrated us. None of them have, have changed our basic thinking. Now, maybe that's asking a lot from movies. Uh, for example, a film that I watched quite recently is called First Reform. And this basically features uh, a young man uh, whose who's wife, in his early 30s, whose wife is pregnant, and he basically takes his own life because he's so overwhelmed by ecological distress and by the fear of bringing a new human being into this, this world. Now, um, it's a tough watch. I'm not necessarily saying that you'll enjoy it, but it, it, it is... What we're seeing here is cinema, the media beginning to confront the realities that face us and also the extreme distress that people are facing. But yes, I think satire is a wonderful way in because there's it was done, for example, in the 1960s with the, the, the possibility of nuclear war when, when it was satirized in the Doctor Strangelove uh, film. And basically, it brought the absurdity and the ridiculousness of military men plotting uh, our doom. And I think... Don't Look Up is almost like a Dr. Strangelove for the, for the 2020s, where it's, it's holding up a mirror to our, not just to our inaction, but to the ludicrous position that we find ourselves in, that the man-made meteor, which is, is the climate disaster, is hurtling towards us. And we're all basically arguing with one another and saying, well, you know, uh, is it real? Does it matter? Well, you know, how will it affect the economy, Cara? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this. How will it affect the economy? Will it be an efficient use of our resources to deal with a, a life threatening and a life extinguishing emergency. So so in that sense, I, I often read uh, so-called coverage like economists and so on writing about climate change, and it makes me smile uh, in, a, in a satirical way. So in that sense, yeah, I think maybe we do need to laugh uh, in, in the face of some of the crazy stuff. Yeah, we all support the jobs that climate crisis will bring, I guess. Joanna, <laughs> Joanna, John has really portrayed, you know, a bleak reality. It is reality. But I think yeah. I think we need to hear some practical, practical advice for both adults and younger people that are dealing with this emerging eco-anxiety for how to deal with it and channel those emotions in a positive way. Absolutely. And it starts with, you know, redefining hope. It's not this fluffy idealism as it's often dismissed as, because actually solution-focused thinking offers hope 
Otherwise, it wouldn't be solution focused. So any action, meaningful, and that doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, it often means it's really hard. But meaningful action is solution focused thinking. And that's the hope. So it's not about telling children and nor do I mean to infer, don't worry, everything will be fine. Because as soon as we do that, our children hear that we are minimizing and dismissing their very real fears that are rooted in real context. And that doesn't reassure children. It actually teaches them not to bring their fears to us. So far from this notion that John has said about people don't need to be fixed, nothing in therapy or therapist offices about fixing people. People aren't broken. It's about processing. It's about listening and hearing. So one practical thing that any of us who are important adults in the lives of children can do is listen, is give that space to hear the fear, validate the fear, and then wonder with them what needs to happen now and going forward. And it's about that solution-focused thinking, but not in any way about minimizing and dismissing fear. I think it is important as adults that we also, as I said at the start, take some of the burden of responsibility of this and look at what very practical actions at a micro and macro level that we need to do and getting information, ensuring that we can talk with our children about this, hear and understand their fears and getting involved, you know, at home, individual changes, but also looking at what groups, what lobby groups, what other things that children can be involved in, because feeling that they're taking an action gives a semblance of control, not over the climate change situation, but their distress about it. So managing distress is not minimizing the issue. It's enabling us to engage with the issue in a meaningful way. Well, my thanks to John Gibbons and Joanna Fortune for giving us some coping methods to deal with climate anxiety. Up next, Dr. Tara Shine will be telling me about her green life. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better future for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today I'm joined by one of my own climate role models, Dr. Tara Shine, author of How to Save Your Planet One Object at a Time and founder of the social enterprise Change by Degrees. Hi, Tara. Hi, Tara. Tara, you've had an incredibly varied career from environmental scientist to BBC presenter to working with the Mary Robinson Climate Justice Foundation, just to name a few of your careers. But every climate advocate that I've talked to says that they had this aha moment when they decided to dedicate their careers specifically to climate change. So I've been really wondering when and what was your aha moment? Yeah, so I think my aha moment was when, as a six-year student, I was trying to find a university course that matched me and my interests. And I knew I loved geography and biology and the environment, but I couldn't find anything that sort of like got me really excited until I found the course Environmental Science at the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland. And from that minute on, I was where I needed to be. And you went on then to go do a PhD in wetland ecosystems in Mauritania and present BBC documentaries around the world. So when did that interest in environmental science segue to an interest in global environmental science? Yeah, for me, they were connected all the way along. While I was still a student, I I traveled for the first time as a volunteer to Namibia in, in Africa. And from then on, I was just really smitten with, you know, uncovering different environments and the natural world and how people interacted with that natural world in different cultures. I think it's a common thread for for people who are passionate about environmental issues that we're also really into nature and scenery and there is a drive to kind of see all of these beautiful places. So how do you reconcile that interest in, in seeing the world and seeing these beautiful areas with the fact that traveling by air is so damaging to the climate? Yeah, it's a really tough one. So it's been made easy in the last few years by going nowhere. Um, but I think that uh, it depends on the kind of travel. Um, like when you go live somewhere or travel, you know, for, for several months to really get to know a place and explore it, I think that's quite different kind of travel from what I would call transactional business travel or package holiday travel where you're literally just in and out. You don't get to stop and get to know a place and explore it and understand the culture and the people. So I hope that we will continue to have travel for understanding and cultural connection um, and connection with the natural world. I think that's important. But maybe we can get rid of all the 
transactional over and back. Speaking of travel, I actually first met you at the UN Climate Conference COP21 in Paris back in 2015. A lot of international and travel involved. I think you were working alongside President Mary Robinson and it was actually my first UN Climate Conference and to be honest, I was really shocked at how male-dominated it was. I think you were one of the few women I, I met there. So having been to so many of these international climate conferences yourself and been so involved with Mary Robinson's work on gender and climate climate change. What are your thoughts about the gender balance of these events and and why gender even matters when it comes to international climate negotiations? Yeah, so when I when I started in 2003 as a young climate negotiator, I was one of two women on the Irish delegation. And at that stage, it was very even more male dominated than it is now. As part of the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Justice, we worked really hard to try and bring better gender balance in the first instance into the COP. And we did that through a decision taken in in Qatar in 2012 around um, putting gender on the agenda in every single COP. And it's not just about gender balance or how many women show up. It's around making sure that the way we design climate policies is cognizant of, A, the different impacts of climate change on men and women, and two, the need to get more women and more diversity in general at decision-making tables in order to solve a problem as big as climate change. And now every single year, the the secretariat of the convention has to produce a report around gender balance and what's happening to improve women's participation in COPs. And I was just looking at the latest one from from last year. And we're still, we've got to gender balance in delegates overall. So of the people attending, it's almost 50-50. But once you get to senior level, the representation of women uh, drops right down to 39%. And here's an interesting one. They did a study last year at one of the sessions looking at who spoke most. Um, And at this session, there was 51% of all the delegates were male, yet they took 60%, they were 60% of the people who spoke, and they took up 63% of the total speaking time. Why do you think it matters? Why do you think it matters? Why it matters is because imagine trying to solve one of the most complicated problems in the world and only tapping into the brain power of half the population. Wouldn't that just be the silliest thing you could ever do? Yeah, I mean, that was exactly what I thought when I went, that we have the most, the biggest challenge of, of humanity at the moment. And, and it's being decided by, you know, half the population. But I was also surprised when I went back to COP22, I got brave enough to ask the entire uh, Irish negotiating team, which was all male that year. And I asked them what they were doing about it. And the response I got from one of the negotiators was he would just go and have a sex change uh, to address my concerns. So do you think Ireland is taking this seriously? at all well so that wasn't a very good answer no <laughs> actually ireland ireland um had a leadership position in the last few years in the gender negotiations and it was a man that led those negotiations which is really important because obviously bringing gender and diversity into discussions on climate change me means that we it can't just be a conversation for women that that's a risk actually in the gender discussions it is overwhelmingly women yet this is about gender it's not just about women um, uh, and so, yeah, Ireland, Ireland has been very supportive of the work that's been going on to have a work plan on, on gender and gender balance and equality in the UNFCCC and to support the work of um, the, you know, the work program that seeks to progress these issues. Um, but we also have to show that in, you know, who leads our delegations, um, uh, the representation we bring, the support that we give through our international programs. And I, w- I am pleased to say also that gender is a big part of our international development cooperation activities related to climate action as well. So um, we're actually we're actually not doing too badly. Yeah, because there's a lot of evidence that women are disproportionately affected by climate change. Is that right? Absolutely. So it's no different to COVID. The people who are most vulnerable in society, who have least enjoyment of the full range of their human rights, are most vulnerable to any crisis or shock that comes along. So if you're already uh, vulnerable, if you already don't have access to your rights, then you're going to be the hardest hit. So the people that were most affected by COVID will the people who will be most affected by climate change as well. You've had a key role in a lot of UN climate conferences, including this latest one in Glasgow. So what was your assessment of the outcomes there and how we're progressing in meeting the Paris climate goals? Yeah, so I was in I was at the Glasgow COP to facilitate a, a dialogue between scientists and policymakers. So that's really important. You know, we have another part of the IPCC M6 assessment report coming out in just next week and trying to bring that science to the policymakers so they can create policy solutions that are informed by the best science is really important. Overall, I think COP26 
it, it took another step forward, which is always good. It's really bad when cops take a few steps backwards. Um, but it wasn't a big enough step. It doesn't have us on track to the, the temperature target of 1.5 degrees. It's really reliant on us coming back again this year at COP27 in Egypt to really step up the commitments that every single country is going to put on the table. Because what we need is we need the national level action to happen much, much faster. And then we all need to stay part of this multilateral process, which ensures that the transition to a net zero world globally is a fair one where every single country in the world gets to participate because we can't keep ourselves safe by acting one country at a time. Um, that process is slow, but it's the only way to get a global movement towards um, the emissions reductions that we need. I think a lot of people watching these international climate negotiations taking place every year feel that it's kind of out of our control and there's nothing we can really do to, to influence or change this. Do you have any words of advice for how to improve the situation? Yeah, um, be curious about it. Um, get, get involved and be part of the conversation in any way you can. So, you know, it's, it's our government and our politicians who represent us there. So that's where your vote matters. Um, and, and bring, you know, we need to increase the conversation we have about climate, not just about, you know, oh, no, it's all so terrible and it's all doom and gloom, but really around the solutions that we already have, uh, the innovation that's at our doorstep, the role of Ireland in being a leader in, you know, being a, a clean, green country powered by renewables with sustainable food. This is something that is totally in our grasp. It's something we can do. It's up to all of us. Um, and yeah, we need the political leadership, sure. But we also need to let the political leaders know that this is what we want. So you founded the social enterprise Change by Degrees four years ago. I'm wondering what prompted this move from really focusing on the international climate issues to social entrepreneurship here in Ireland. Yeah, so I had spent nearly 25 years working on climate change on the international stage. And we had come to the end of the, the work of the Mary Robinson Foundation. So we spent eight years there and, and had achieved our goals and the foundation w was closing. Um, and, and I was like, right, now what am I going to do? Because I remain as interested in climate as ever. But we now have the Paris Agreement. We have the SDGs. And the focus has moved to kind of implementing at the national level. And at that stage in, in sort of late 2017, 2018, Ireland was really um, a laggard still in Europe in terms of climate action. And I just thought, right, that's what I need to do. I need to turn my attention to, to home. Um, and, and I was ready to be home more and less on planes. Um, and so I'd, I, I met Madeleine Murray swimming in the sea. And uh, we put our heads together and, and created Change by Degrees to work with organizations in Ireland to help them get more positive about climate action and sustainability and also to really start to change the behavior in their operations to be part of the sustainable change we need to see. What's been your proudest moment as Director of Change by Degrees so far? That we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's been for, you know, a scientist and an archaeologist to set up a business that has survived a pandemic and that is uh, thriving right now is a really fabulous thing. Yeah. Um, so to be thrown into the world of business and entrepreneurship when your background is as a scientist is, is a really interesting transition. Absolutely. With all your free time, you even managed to write a book in 2020 called How to Save Your Planet One Object at a Time, which advises people in making more sustainable decisions room by room. So what inspired you to take on that challenge? It was part of the same moment of, you know, if I'm going to, if this is all about action and people now, what I observed was that politicians often got stuck around doing brave things around policy and legislation because they didn't believe they had the support of the people. So I'm all about systemic change, but what I came to realize was that I couldn't get systemic change if, if people weren't supportive of the need for it and if they didn't feel involved in it and if they weren't part of the conversation. So I decided to write How to Save Your Planet because it was to democratize a little bit what it was to be green. We can't, we can't make this change if only a few people who think they're green are part of the conversation. It has to be something for everybody. So the book is goes through the most banal, ordinary, everyday objects that every single person has in their house, their garage, their garden shed and their toy box and, and shows you how you can be part of the conversation, how there's things that you can change in your life, but also that by being part of, uh, yeah, by, by talking to people about it and telling them why you've changed things and why that's important, we can start to create the the movement and support for the systemic change we need. I was actually surprised when you came out with this book because I, I had seen you on the international stage and and I think you and I have always advocated for the need for system change and uh, a lot of us who advocate for system change would would 
kind of say that we shouldn't be making individuals feel like this is all on them and that campaigns like the power of one campaign actually mm. did a disservice to climate action in Ireland. So how how do you kind of wrestle with this idea that if we keep telling individuals, oh, do these little things at home, that actually it, it, it gets politicians off the hook in some ways? Yeah, no, so my, my rationale is completely different. So as I say, I found that politicians often wouldn't act because they didn't feel they had the support of the voters. So if that becomes a blockage, what do you do to get the voters more engaged and more supportive so they give the political license to the politicians to do what they need to do? So it needs to be both. To get systemic change, we have to have top-down leadership and we need bottom-up demand. And I felt that in Ireland, we didn't have enough bottom-up demand. Actually, in the world, we don't have enough bottom-up demand. We're still, it's still niche. It's still niche to really care about sustainability. Um, and so to grow that, you have to show everybody that it's relevant to them. So this isn't about putting the responsibility on individuals. It's inviting them to be part of the conversation and inviting them to get active and involved. So the worst thing you can do in the face of an emergency is be frozen. The best thing you can do is say, I know some things I can do, and I know I have some power and influence over what's going to happen. That's a much better place to be. What are a couple of the things in the book that have resonated most with readers? So different objects obviously resonate with different people. So, you know, whether it's like computers or cling film, that's a, an individual thing. But overall, I think people find out that if they're curious about things, where things come from, if they ask questions, but also if they look into the opportunities that a sharing economy provides, that you we don't in the future need to own everything. Um, we can have access to things. We can rent things. We can co-own things. Um, that this is going to be a very different way of living in the future and one with real benefits that connect us to our community and will ultimately mean a better way of life. You mentioned that you think this movement is still very niche and you've been working on this for a number of decades. Have you seen changes? Do you feel like it is becoming less niche over time? Yeah, and I think a lot of that is to do with um, the youth movements around climate action. I think They've done a really good job where uh, we, as kind of the, the climate and environmental science people in the past failed, we, we talked too much about these issues in terms of a faraway future and something that was highly technical and about atmospheric gases. They've made it about them. They've made it personal. They're really, really clear in understanding the science, but they're really clear in what it means to them and their lives. And their communication of this has been really powerful. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a big change. And also now um, in the work that I do as in Change by Degrees with, uh, with companies and businesses, um, then the, the penny has dropped. They've got it now at this stage. To be a good business, to be a successful business, they have to have sustainability at the heart of what they do. And I mean that at the heart of what they do, not on the fringes or the edges of what they do. Well, that's a positive note to end on. My thanks to Dr. Tara Shine, founder of Change by Degrees, among many other accomplishments for filling me in on her green life. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Rousseau, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, we may start glowing in the dark as we discuss whether there's a future for nuclear power in Ireland. But until then, stay curious.